0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. We all thought, for no particular reason, that maybe you could use a good story about a protest today. A story about a peaceful protest. A creative protest. A protest that slowly but surely converted the surrounding community to join the cause and rallied them to work together. A protest, in short, that worked Water Protector Cheryl Maloney says the years of opposition against
1: Alton Gas finally paid off. Last year, the Nova Scotia Supreme Court ruled Aboriginal title and treaty rights were not engaged in the consultation process.
0: I don't know how much attention you pay to the industry, but it is no small thing to make an oil and gas company walk away from a pipeline. And this was done without threats or intimidation. Merely by understanding the laws on the books, working within them, and bringing allies, one by one, into the fold. So just in case, like many Canadians, you have had enough of protest these days. Just remember, no matter the cause, a protest done right can enact real change. And today, we'll give you a pretty good blueprint for that. (laughs) I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Cheryl Maloney is a Mi'kmaq woman and a former National Environment Coordinator for the Native Women's Association of Canada. She is one of the leaders, perhaps, though she might deny it, the leader of the protest. Hi, Cheryl. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's not often that we get a good story relating to a pipeline.
1: I, I know we were shocked, um... But there's, a, I think, a lot of good people were involved in this good story.
0: Well, why don't you first begin by just telling me about the land and the river system that you guys were fighting to protect. Where is it? What's it like? Describe it. Take us there.
1: Well, you know, we're on the highest tides in the world. It's the Bay of Fundy. And every day, the uh, the river, the minus basin, it narrows, and the tide comes in. And as it narrows, there's an intricate... Um, system of rivers that are attached to it. And I live actually on the Shiabanaki River which is one of the rivers that attach to the minus basin. And every day um, twice a day the tide comes in, it goes out. Now the river system at parts you can walk the ocean floor, you'll see the mud flats. And at different parts of the day and different times and seasons, sometimes the water is salty. And then sometimes it's fresh, and sometimes it's an in-between. Huh. So it's just the most unique river system in the world. There's nothing like it, and therefore the highest tides in the world. And so that's that's what we watch. And you can sometimes see the um, rafters you know, ride the tide in. I've seen surfers ride the tide in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it's just quite beautiful. And to see and feel the energy when you hear the tidal bore coming in, it's it's magnificent but it's a muddy river it's a brown river it's you know you, you wouldn't say oh look at the pristine river it but it is it is so beautiful and majestic
0: in the community there who uses uh, the river system and, and what do they use it for and get out of it
1: you know everybody used it and um, when I was doing the work uh, you know the advocacy around Alton gas I always assumed that my family came from the Shaabanati side of the river system. But a young law student researcher came to the site where we built this truck house. And we'll talk about that in a bit. And he said, Cheryl, this is where your great great grandfather, your great grandfather was raised. Um, And he had done research and found research that the land where they were actually opening up these pipes was where my direct ancestors used to live prior to colonization. And one of the things he was telling me was how plentiful food and um, resources were. We had both the ocean and all the species that come through it. And then all the, uh, the land and the animals that were surrounded that area. And that we, we really didn't have to um, travel a lot during the winter and the seasons because it just provided so much for us. So that river system um, supported my direct ancestors, my nation, but also um, our neighbors. Hmm. Twice a year, the bass are running and my river just becomes full of anglers from all over the uh, territory. It's, it's just an amazing piece of um, of who we are in Nova Scotia not just the Mi'kmaq, but us as the Nova Scotians. And the work we did with Alton Gas really brought together all those people that are tied to the land, not just the Mi'kmaq that I I know we feel tied to the land. We feel the energy of our ancestors and our history there. But Nova Scotians um, stepped up and they were a part of this work. And it's just quite beautiful, actually.
0: If you can remember it, um, can you take me back and tell me about the moment that you first heard there was a proposal for a pipeline uh, involving these rivers? What was your very first thought or reaction?
1: Well, you know, I was having a glass of wine at my little bar in my basement. We're, in, we're surrounded by fields. There's no bars in this town. So I created a little bar. My brother came and he was sitting there with my sister and, and he said, there's a pipelines in the ground, and they're going to start brining, dumping salt brine into the river. I said, what do you mean there's pipes in the ground? There's no pipes in the ground here. I live here. And uh, so he was telling me about this project. And the next day, we start calling around. And sure enough, there were pipes in the ground from eight years ago, where work had started. Hmm. And the, apparently, the funders pulled out of this project, so all these provincial um, permits were passed in I think two thousand eight, two thousand six, seven, eight. Research in two thousand four, five, and um, they lost the funding, so the project literally just died. And then they got new funders, and they um, dusted off those old permits and started working without any community consultation. And that is where, um, you know, we got involved. And the chiefs were just getting starting to get new letters again after, I think, eight years of hearing nothing on this project. Huh. So they were trying to, you know, slide it under the rug and, and um, hoping nobody would know or say anything about it. But then we, um, we found out. I told my brother, I said, I can't, I'm so busy, I can't possibly get involved with something like this. Like, I don't know. And he, he thought, I'm the only one that can do it. <laughs> and right. after two glasses of wine, I agreed. Fine, let's do something.
0: <laughs> Before we talk about what you did and, and what the community did, uh, you touched on it very briefly, but maybe can you explain what Alton Gas wanted to do specifically?
1: Well, they wanted to, um, because of the the unique geology in Nova Scotia, we have all these, we're a small little island on Bay of Fundy, and we're very muddy. We have like a red mud on one side of our province. On the other side is the ocean, uh, more of a traditional rock and and surfing ocean and sandy beaches. But the side on our side is um, all surrounding the Bay of Fundy has all these salt caverns within our geology. And they wanted to empty these salt caverns to store natural gas. Hmm. And I guess it's been done several places in the world and with problems and sinkholes and all kinds of um, concerns about it. And now they're trying to do something similar to that in a very unique geology, in a small little island in Nova Scotia and thought we could handle it. And uh, so they wanted to empty the out and store natural gas and they wanted to empty it by piping the uh, brine the salty brine and and all the mess that goes out into our river and they thought the tide would take it out every day and bring it back in you know but during our work there we watched one boat got loose and every tide we watched it go back and forth back and forth it never went out to the ocean right and it never went far upstream it went back and forth and um we thought their science isn't good. And it it wasn't good. We ended up doing our own science.
0: So let's pick it up there then, maybe. Um, You've had two glasses of wine. You say, fine, I'll do it. (laughs) How did the protests begin? Where did you start?
1: Well, you know, I have a law degree um, and and worked in the environment um, and have done lots of advocacy in my life. And the first thing I thought is, if I don't know, and I live on this river, nobody knows. So our first job was to make sure Nova Scotians knew about it. So Treaty Day was coming up October 1st. And that's uh, there's lots of um, news coverage and everything in Nova Scotia. There's pomp and ceremony. And you know, then we have our Treaty Day celebrations in the Halifax with the premier province House. So this particular Treaty Day, instead of celebrating, we organized a highway slowdown. And we were scared to do a highway slowdown. We don't want to interfere with anybody's life, their livelihood, you know, their commitments, their family. But we thought that it would be the best first step to make sure that Nova Scotians knew about this project.
0: We're
1: up for our water, man. Staying up for our fish and our environment, all this beautiful... Oh my! Goodness. And it was very successful because that... Treaty Day, we had media coverage from across the country and every major network, and then all of a sudden, everybody knew about this project that they tried to just, you know, start, restart after eight years of, of being um, dormant. I remember going looking for the premier at Treaty Day and couldn't find him anywhere. Hmm. And I love him, you know. We have a, a I wouldn't say a love hate relationship, but a uh, certainly a challenge in relationship with respect where where it's due. But we, uh, we did call out the province, and it wasn't any one particular government. It wasn't the Conservatives, the Liberal, or the NDP, because this project had been rubber-stamped years ago. You know, each consecutive government did the same thing, rubber-stamping. And uh, it was a challenge. Just, there was just so much work that went into it and, and a matter of learning. So the first step was community awareness, and I mean the Nova Scotia community. And I remember being on the side of the road just prior to 11 o'clock. It was about 1030, and nobody was there. And, I'm, you know, I did media releases. We're going to shut down the highway. <laughs> and we painted the signs, and we did all the work. And I right. got there, and the wind is blowing, and I'm holding our car together. And CTV News, Rick Grant's there, and Rick covers some of my work in the past. And he interviewed me. He said, well, we might as well interview you while no one's here. And I'm like, well, I hope people come. And, uh, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, Cheryl, do you think you can stop this? He said, the pipes are in the ground. And I remember looking at him and nobody there. And I'm holding the talk together. And like, yes, Rick Grant, I think we can. Hmm. And I, uh, I never forgot that moment. And then I looked down the little path of the the little um, overgrown path roadway to the uh, highway where we were holding our uh, slowdown, the highway slowdown. And I seen this little old lady and a man, Annabelle and Store um, Marshall Tebow, and she was limping, and he was carrying their chairs, and they were carrying the sign, and they were hanging on to each other. And I, my heart just filled to see want anybody coming but to know that this issue was important to Nova Scotians that you know these elders came out and they made it their day and uh Annabelle was one of ended up being one of the um most committed persons to this um this project and you know she's just a, a little old lady that's been at almost everything but her name isn't in the news. She isn't um, being on podcast. Um, but she was a very important person in First Step. And, um, you know, a lot of Nova Scotians joined after that. You know, the neighbors, the fishing associations. It wasn't just Migma, And uh, I, it warms my heart to realize that it's not just Mi'kmaq.
0: Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC, available now. I know it was years in the making. So, how did the protests um, evolve over time as you kind of gathered momentum or learned what what worked and what didn't?
1: Well, you know, we started you because I have a law degree, and, and um, our community has been to the Supreme Court of Canada twice. My father was a a staunch advocate for Aboriginal treaty rights, but especially our, our treaties and, and taking them to the Supreme Court of Canada and winning. We knew the law and we knew indigenous law. And so one of the first things we did was um, at the point where they wanted to dump brine into the water. We looked at the Supreme Court of Canada decisions of our versus Simon, where, it was um, acknowledged that the treaty is as good today as the day it was signed. And one of the clauses in the treaty was that we we're allowed to make a truck house on the Shubenacadie River for the purpose of trade. What that does is it gives us legal rights for all Nova Scotians to come to the river site to trade with the Mi'kmaq. So hmm. then all of a sudden, the people that were afraid to come to the site because Alton had these trespassing signs and we're going to call the cops and security. And once we built the truck house on that site, everyone was then allowed to go. And they all had a constitutionally protected treaty right to come to the river site. And people started coming. Nova Scotians started coming. The media started coming. They would come and they would see the majestic river. They would see the tidal bore. They would see the mud flats. They could see the, the site, the, you know, the damage um, that they were trying to
0: do. Mm-hmm. It,
1: it was, uh, I think, a key point.
0: Uh, well, they can't move us here because of the 1752 treaty that they made with our people one time ago. Section 4 says we can have a truck house for trade in anywheres of our resort. We can't move that because
1: the treaty is stronger than provincial law. So it went from being an Indigenous issue to, and an educational piece for Nova Scotians too, that this is, it's, it's real that this treaty and the rights that go with it belong to all of us. And in Nova Scotia, we've been coining that we are all treaty people um, concept. And I think the work we did with Alton and uh, some of those strategic pieces that we did and building that truck house, it cemented our relationship with Nova Scotians that we are indeed all treaty people and that we indeed share these resources and the relationship and the responsibility to that relationship Was realized in this work.
0: Was that the one thing that did it? Uh, The truck house and the ability to bring people onto that land?
1: I believe it was a critical point. The other point that was, um, I think, really uh, a moment was when the Mi'kmaq from seven directions, seven districts, so it wasn't just the Mi'kmaq in in Shobenaki or the First Nation community adjacent to this project. We had Mi'kmaq from all over the territory come because this was a a main highway for Mi'kmaq. And it was a gathering place and there's so much history to it. But we had Mi'kmaq from all over. And and so the company would try to say, we're going to deal with the First Nation Band Office Chief and Council. One day we had Mi'kmaq representatives and we each took a eel trap It was a man-made island because Alton dug this channel out. And when they made their channel, they created a little land mass in the river system. So they were saying, you're in our trespass and you're in our channel, our mixing channel. And I'm saying, no, this is now an island. And we coined this little island, Treaty Island. And I remember the day we went over there and they called the cops. We took our boats over and we had lobster traps. We put a teepee up that day and they're calling the cops and they're yelling at me. And and I'm like, okay, let them come. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, I'm not practicing environmental marine law or anything, but I know the law. I said, and I think we're okay here. I think we're okay. The law will protect us. But instead of going to court or doing research or anything, we went over with our traps and our, our, our members from all over the territory, and we dropped eel traps in the Mixon Channel from Treaty Island, hmm. and nobody could stop us. So instead of us trying to prove the law, we let them try to prove that we were wrong by being there. And um, the police came and the police left. DFO came and they looked in there and they said, yeah, you're not really doing anything. You're not allowed to be doing. The Mi'kmaq have a constitutionally protected right to fish. Hmm. And uh, I think that was the other key moments where now in order to remove us, Alt and Gas would have to go or the Crown would have to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada to justify infringing upon our constitutionally protected treaty and aboriginal rights to fish adjacent to the Shabanaki River in, you know, adjacent to the truck house, which is also protected and constitutional. Right. And I think those two pieces um, were the critical legal strategy that, that stopped it. But the advocacy that was happening all around and happened in the years since, there were so many groups, organizations, residents doing research, people that lived adjacent to the, um, the sites where they were digging the caverns, they had binders and binders. There was individuals that were just you know doing research, trying to find out what permits were needed. And you know what It helped a lot, too, was the media. Mm-hmm. And I remember when, you know, when they left, I, I I always call them out and say, you know, they're not out to make you look bad or anything else. They do a job. And I remember saying, well, we know we're waiting for some permits and we couldn't get answers from anybody. But they went right there and they asked the questions and they came back and reported in the news that there was eight permits outstanding. <laughs> and so, you know, it's... um very strategic in the work you're doing and how you use all the moving parts, whether it's law, whether it's citizens, the media is useful. And uh, I remember um, one time I was in the hockey rink with a a non-native hockey dad and he goes, oh, that's just a Micmac thing. Hmm. And I'm like, no, it's not. He said, well, I looked at the media coverage and there was one, one, newspaper front page, it said Mi'kmaq protesters. And I looked at the pictures and there's Annabelle and a group of non-Indigenous, there's fishermen there, um, residents, and they weren't all Mi'kmaq. But the front story in the headlines was Mi'kmaq protesters. And I said, "Okay, he's right. It's, It's not coming off that this is everybody's story and that everybody has a role to play. So I remember the next um, the next intervention we did, it was based on the residents that lived right adjacent to the cavern sites. And they were just families and retirees that built houses at the end of a dead end street in rural Nova Scotia. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. buying your house? Nobody around. And then all of a sudden, there's trucks going by every day. There's bright lights from the, um, the, the cavern sites that don't stop. There's noise, traffic noise, air pollution, uh, light pollution, sound pollution. And never mind that they're digging out from underneath your home, deep under the earth, and there's nothing you could do about it. So our next intervention was with these people. And I said, you guys have to do your story. And um, I remember we planned it and all the Mi'kmaq stayed away. We could not be there. If there was one Mi'kmaq person there, it would have been a Mi'kmaq protest. So we all had to stay away. And I know the residents, they were like, oh, my God, we're scared. We don't know what we're going to do. And so they were going to caravan to the front of the um, Alton Gas cavern site and block them in and read their statements of the, the impacts it had on them. And I remember one of the ladies that that was so afraid, she she came back and she said, Cheryl, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to me, she said, but I was leading the caravan to the front entrance. She said, and this big trucks were trying to come out. She said, I don't know what took over me, but I just stepped on it. And I drove right in front of them and I slammed on the brakes and I spinned in front of them and I stopped this caravan of trucks. And I'm like, oh, my God, she went too far. <laughs> Are you safe? <laughs> but the news changed. The story changed. Um, other people's stories were were being told. And I think that was an important and very strategic part and, and led to the success of, um, you know, stopping this pipeline. People want to tend to ignore it when they say it's just a native issue. Um, Stop in a pipeline for whatever reason. Uh, in Nova Scotia, we were able to work with all Nova Scotians. And in the beginning, they were telling us it was a benefit to Nova Scotia. Hmm. They said there was only two or three jobs ever going to be from this, shutting the brine off and on. And they were saying that it was going to give us cheaper natural gas. But the more we researched and found out, there was no plans for that natural gas to be extended to rural Nova Scotian communities. It just wouldn't have made any any sense. We were a small population, we're scattered. You know, they're not going to build a pipeline 10 miles up the road to get two or three farms, right? And the more we found out, it was about um, the U.S. markets.
0: Right. Hmm.
1: It would be stored in Nova Scotia and the pipelines would be going to the United States and it was about fracking, Fracking and storing and using us for the benefit of the the you know the U.S. markets and for industry, and I think um, by holding this project off long enough and getting more Nova Scotians involved, we see what the real picture was.
0: And so, was that ultimately the key to victory? You just got in their way for so long with various uh, loopholes and various treaties that that they ultimately packed up and abandoned? Tell me how it ended.
1: Well, you know, I I remember I was there for a number of years and involved with all of the movements. And then one day the the drills left Nova Scotia. They said they're wasting them by having them sit in there. Hmm. The drills left Nova Scotia to be used elsewhere. And at that point in time, I kind of felt like I'm going to go home and rest. There was still lots of advocacy, research, fundraising, events, films being made. But I decided I'm going to rest at that point. I think that that project ended then. I think it ended then because the next number of years, you know, they went to court. They, they tried to sue my band. I was on council. Yes. I ran to be on council so that I could <laughs> have the council's position, you know, um, the, the right position. And the council did end up taking the court and challenging the duty to consult pieces. And that, that was another critical piece um, because they tried to one first bribe the community. And then when the bribes didn't work and I was on council still supporting the efforts against this project, they then said that they were going to sue the band for millions of dollars for every day of delay because I was a counselor and I was part of the government. And so there was a time there where my chief and counselor were even afraid to go down to the site because they thought we could get sued. And the lawyers were telling them, you guys could get sued. So I just, just, one day we had a sacred fire for three or four days and I just said, fine, I quit. Hmm. So we blocked them in. One day, I had a news conference at the gate of Alton Gas, and I'm I'm coming. I'm here. I'm going to stay. I quit my job on council, so you can no longer sue the band. And shame on you guys. Shame, shame, shame for trying to starve out impoverished communities that already live well below the poverty line. Our children are. You know, live below poverty at higher rates than anywhere in this country, and this multi-billion dollar company wants to sue them. so i I quit. And uh, you know, from one turn to the next, it was uh, it was an adventure. And we won?
0: It's a fantastic story. I think it's one we can all take lessons from. Congratulations, and thank you again for sharing it with us today.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you.
0: That was Cheryl Maloney. And that was The Big Story. For more from us, head to TheBigStoryPodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN, talk to us anytime. The Big Story Podcast, that's all one word at rci.rogers.com. Yes, I am sure we will be back to covering a much more annoying protest sometime soon, but for now, isn't it nice to reaffirm that change can happen calmly and peacefully. You can find The Big Story in every podcast player. You can find it in your smart speaker just by asking it to play The Big Story podcast. Stephanie Phillips is the lead producer of The Big Story. Joseph Fish and Braden Alexander are our associate producers. And right now, Efwa Mofogio is our intern. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.